Welcome. I'm so glad you guys are here. Uh, we are diving in for the first week in a brand new series. We actually kicked it off last week, but this is the first time we actually get to uh, explore and wrestle and go through all of this craziness. What we've decided to do is a very strange endeavor of going after the weirdest passages in scripture, like the part where the donkey talks weird, like that stuff, and pulling it out and explaining its context. Because uh, we believe that context is vital to understanding where we are in the grander story. The Bible is a collection of a whole bunch of different stories that comes together as one to tell an even bigger story. But if we pull out all of these little pieces and chop it up and put all the verses and all that good stuff, then we lose the grander picture. We lose what the whole context, the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation is trying to tell us, and we're only telling part of the story. So we want to give uh, context in four different lenses, and that's poetry, history, timing, and culture. Poetry, history, timing, and culture. And I'm going to outline why we need all of those this morning. Um, I'm also going to tell a very strange story about Jesus, uh, and then we'll talk about repeats in the Bible. It's going to be fun. So let, let me pray, and then we'll continue. Lord, uh, I'm just I'm so excited to, to talk through Scripture to talk through your word, to uh, dive in and get to know you better. Um, you are with us even now, Lord, and the story keeps going. And so I pray that we would understand the context that we are standing in right now and the hurt that we are in right now as a country. We leave space to reflect on what happened in Vegas, the terrible, awful, awful thing that happened in Vegas, Lord. We pray for the victims, we pray for their families, and we pray that this morning we could figure out some context about what the heck is going on, because it just constantly seems like every time I get up here on a Sunday morning, I have to say something like this again. So Lord, we sit in this, and we don't like it. And so we pray for guidance, I pray that you would um, bring us peace this morning and a new understanding that's what you're all about. You're all about making things new. Amen. Um, so we are in October now, uh, and I'm wearing a beanie because I'm an optimist. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like 90 degrees outside, uh, but I love October. It's one of my favorite months because this is the kickoff of the holiday season. If you walk into like a Target right now, it's Christmas time already, and it is great. <laughs> I love it. I'm the kind of guy that wants to listen to Christmas songs all year long and like watches Christmas movies. I mean, weird stuff, but I, I can't get enough of that holiday feeling. And I think it's so funny that when we, we walk through the stores, we're sipping on our pumpkin spice latte, we're thinking about these days with such visions of grandeur. Like, oh my gosh, Halloween is going to be incredible. Or, you know what, Thanksgiving this year is going to be amazing. And I love Christmas time and I can't wait for Christmas. But then when we get to the dreaded Thanksgiving table, we realize we've been duped. <laughs> For three times a year, we come together with people that we barely know to eat, and we call that family, and we call the other thing Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, you name it, whatever it is. We come together with people that the only thing we have in common is DNA in some cases, and we come with all of our stories and our baggage and our struggles, and we come to that table, and often what happens is that table becomes more like a battleground than it does a Thanksgiving table. We come in with our stories, like this is the way I think it should be, and then you have the way that you think it should be, and then Uncle George is a racist, and we've got all of this going on all at once. Well, why do we do that to each other? 
The reason that it's so difficult to come together, and I truly believe this, if we can understand how to read scripture carefully, we can take these sort of methods and purposes and use them when it comes to this Thanksgiving and this Christmas. So basically what this whole series is going to do is get you prepped for that moment where you have to deal with drunk Uncle George. I don't know why I'm giving George such a hard time, but I'm going to stick with that name. George is now the only name I'm going to use. Um, because what, what context is all about is listening. And I think that 90% of the time, whenever we're in a conversation or whenever we're in a holiday situation, we are thinking before we speak. We're already thinking what our next answer is going to be without fully listening to the other person. And when we do that, we cut off any hope to understand them or to understand their context. They may have been raised in a totally different way than you have. They may have different stories, they have different things that they're bringing to the table, but so often we bring in our baggage and our stories and our luggage and we slam it on the table and we think that our job is to convince everybody else that ours is the right way. Rather than coming in and actually listening and hearing people out, and guys, that is the way that things are actually going to change. Earlier this year, we decided uh, that we wanted to have less of me just speaking at you, which is always a good thing. Um, but we realized that conversations are so difficult to have, especially right now in social media and across keyboards and all that kind of stuff. So what we did is we literally set up panels of people. Some people were from our own church, some were experts in their given field, whatever it was. But we hosted conversations here, real sweat and blood conversations right in front of you uh, on all sorts of topics. We did politics. That like, didn't cost me my job. I'm really thrilled about that. Um, we did stages of faith. We had a skeptic, and we had someone who was like, uh, sort of a moderate, and then someone who was way, way, way further down the spiritual path. We had all of this stuff because we realized that when we have people actually share and we have a space that we can create where people can actually listen, then we can change our minds. We can change our minds. And so what I'm hoping with this series, what we can do, is we can change our minds about some of the most damaging scripture that is available. The stuff that has been used to just clobber us down for years. I want to take away the guilt and the shame and the hurt, and I want to show us that this Bible is all about redemption. And it's all about love, and it doesn't always work the way it is, but we have to listen and pay attention. So along with our four lenses that we use, poetry, history, timing, and culture, we have one rule. One rule when we approach scripture, one rule when we approach conversations, one rule at Thanksgiving, and that is to pay attention. Pay attention. Look around, listen before you speak. Actually hear the other person out, put yourself in their shoes, empathize with them, understand them, and then speak. And that's what we need to do when we come to Scripture, too, because all too often, we don't actually read the stories in Scripture. We read us. We read what we're bringing to the text. I'm having a bad day, so I'm going to bring that into the text. I'm having a great day. I'm going to bring that into the text. We're bringing our context into a thing that already has context. And some of that's good, but we really need to understand the overall context of some of these weird passages to truly be able to bring them uh, to light. So let's go down why we need poetry, history, timing, and culture. So the first one is going to be poetry. Poetry because a lot of the Bible is a poem. And that's so, so mind-blowing that we've forgotten that and we start lead it, like literally reading this stuff like it's just words on a page, true, black and white, that's it. 
What we need to do is actually spend time looking at some of the beauty in the Psalms, in the stories of Jesus. These are all poems, and they are meant to unpack. We are meant to do the work of seeing the different angles all over the place. That's the beauty of poetry. And poetry gives us a language where normal words just fall flat. When we come up against the stuff that we have dealt with this week in Vegas, it doesn't help to read a headline that says 59 people have lost their lives. Because that number becomes disarming, right? It's just a number. It's 59. I love uh, this man named Patrick Otuma. Uh, if you have a chance, check out some of his books and poetry. Uh, but he's a man who lives in Northern Ireland and uh, started this center where people, the Protestants and the Catholics, could come together and heal and have conversations together. But the life he's led, he lost his mom to the troubles, he's lost friends to the troubles. This is like the, the constant warring that was happening in Northern Ireland at the time. And so he wrote a poem to describe what it felt like to actually lose someone. And it goes like this, he said, when I was young, I learned to count. One, two, three. But now in the face of great tragedy, I'm learning to count lives, and so I count one, 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 one. Do you see how much more effective that beautiful language is rather than lives are lost? Now that 59 actually becomes more than just a number. Because we're forced to reckon with the fact that we have to say one, 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 one. Poetry gives us this beautiful, beautiful picture of what it really means to sit in the story. And it's lenses like that, it's vehicles like poetry that we need to embrace when we come to scripture because it does such a better job. It's downright just more interesting. It's better. And when we learn to do that, we learn to love better. All right, so the second lens is history. Or let's go timing and then we'll do history. Um, timing is different than history, and I want to show you the distinction here. Um, timing is like we all know when the right time is to ask for that raise or when it's the wrong time. We all know that if George, once again, he's made it George, when George is having a bad day, it's not a great time to tell him that his car is on fire, but we have to. Like, we understand timing. Timing is important. Look in scripture. This is amazing. Jesus enters the scene in the weirdest timing possible. He pops into an unwed mother and father in a manger. Not a great time to have a baby. Not a great time just for their relationship. Not a great time at all. It was really strange timing. So when we see that timing is off in scripture, we need to pay attention. Take a closer look. One of the coolest stories in the Bible involves timing, and that is where Jesus is sitting down, reclining at a table in the town minister's home, and a sex worker bursts into the scene and anoints his feet with oils that would cost about a year's worth of earning. That was strange timing. And the author of scripture understands this, and so they use this as a tool to show us just the severity of that situation. She's doing this now? Why is she doing this now? Scripture knows this. So when we, when we see an odd timing or we see a great timing in Scripture, pay attention. Look deeper. All right, now let's go to history. Um, history is vital 
vital, guys, when we come to the weird craziness in the Bible, because we have to understand that the world was different and it was the same. We're dealing with totally different problems and totally the same problems, but it helps to understand the historical context because it gives us a little more freedom and it frees the text a little bit. So let's look at this one. This is a, this is a good scripture to start with. This is Jesus and Matthew. Don't know if I'm going to be able to read that, but here we go. Uh, this is Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law uh, against her mother-in-law. That's Matthew 34 or 35. That makes for a very awkward Thanksgiving table. Why does he say that? That's so weird because Prince of Peace, like we hear Jesus is all about peace. And here he's saying, I'm not here to bring peace, but a sword. At second glass, it, it looks like he's kind of advocating for like, domestic violence. It's not great. <laughs> Why is that in there? If we explore the history of where this comes from, this verse is actually totally and incredibly loving. You see, the book of Matthew was written in a context where uh, Nero, who is this emperor of Rome, um, starts this fire. And this fire is called the Great Fire of Rome, and it just, it just ravages the city. It's terrible. And, like, it's Nero's fault. The infrastructure was his fault. It, it was his fault. But he needed someone to blame so that the whole country wouldn't turn around on him, and he needed a scapegoat. So he found out that there was this new group on the scene, this group of Jewish people who were talking about this Jesus guy, and they were calling Jesus Lord, and so that was kind of a direct offense to him. So he's like, hey, I'm going to put all the blame on these guys for this fire. And what happened is this terrifying, terrifying time in history where these Christians who were already on the outside edges of society, they had had to basically leave their families if they converted to this Christianity because it didn't fit within the line of Judaism. So they're already on the outside. And when a Roman soldier would come to the door to arrest them and put them to death, because if you were a Christian, it was a dying offense. You'd be burned at the stake. Craziness. They would come, and the only way out of this punishment was to point to someone else. You could say, I'm not a Christian, but that wasn't good enough. You had to show them another Christian because somebody had to pay for this. And so what this resulted in was a horrifying time where mothers had to point at their daughters, or daughters had to point at their mothers, or sons had to point at their fathers, or brother against brother, friend against friend. It pitted people against each other. And this is the cultural context in which the readers in Matthew are reading. And so when they read this, they see Jesus winking at them saying, I see you, and it's going to be okay. The sword is this metaphor for separation. And so what he's saying is, I'm not just here to bring peace. I'm here to separate you from this awful atrocity. We're going to figure this out. But in the meantime, I know what's going on, and I see you. See, that verse without a historical context is just weird. But with it, man, it's amazing. It's amazing what Scripture can do. All right, and then finally... The fourth uh, is culture. Culture is my favorite because it wraps a neat bow on kind of all of this. It's important to understand the culture because that works with the history and the timing and the poetry. The poem changes when the culture shifts. 
right? Instead of a sonnet, maybe it's hip-hop. Instead of a film, maybe it's a YouTube video. It, culture changes the context that we're in, and so we have to pay attention to the culture in the Bible. And there are tons of cultures in the Bible, tons. This book has people from all different walks of life going down a similar path. Does that sound familiar? That's the story of us. That's the story of the Thanksgiving table. That's the story of all of your family coming in with all of their context and their stories all coming down into one space. And the Bible holds all of that. It holds all of Scripture. And it's incredible to just look that there's room for everything in there. There's room for the atrocities in there. There's room for the joys in there. There's room for lament in there. There's room for happiness in there. There's room for childbirth in there. There's room for death. You've got from point A to point B this huge, huge spectrum of cultures and identities. And if we can hold that and we can understand that, then when we're dealing with other people, we can realize that every story counts, every story matters, and that we can listen to them and see them as more than just the reply that we're already thinking in the back of our heads. The other thing I want to look at today is one of my favorite things in the world. It's, it's when scripture uh, repeats. It repeats itself a lot, and it's not scared of that. And I think that's really interesting. We, the Bible could be a whole lot shorter. We have four stories of the same Jesus, <laughs> four different accounts. We have four different gospels that all tell roughly the same story. Deuteronomy is literally called second law. That's what it translates literally into, because in Deuteronomy, it literally retells the story of the first four books that came before it. When you're in seminary and you're having to read these long texts, it gets infuriating. <laughs> like, why do we have to have this? The, my favorite and least favorite is the fact that first and second Kings exist. Those are two different books in the Bible. And then right after it are first and second Chronicles, which tell the exact same story. <laughs> Why is that there? Why does scripture repeat itself? Why do we need it to repeat itself? And why did they keep it in? And when we look into this, the story is actually fascinating and it's all to do with context. Let's look at the first, second Kings and first, second Chronicles example. First and second Kings was written to a group of people that were needing to understand the monarchy. They had kings at this point. So there's David and there's Solomon. And that's really what the story of first and second Kings is all about, David and Solomon. Now, fast forward to when First and Second Chronicles needs to get written. Israel has been totally conquered by the Babylonians. This is a point in history where they've just come from being like top dog, we have our kings, we're thriving, we built a temple, we're worshiping in this temple. This is the culmination of kind of everything that God has been doing since Genesis all the way through. And we made it, man, we're here. And the Babylonians come through, wreck everything, including the temple, which was a real political move. Because they didn't have to knock that down. They could have repurposed it. They could have done something. But it was essentially to tell this nation, Israel, that your God is not even going to fight for you anymore. That we're going to pull apart the culmination of your culture, brick by brick. It's no longer going to be there. It's devastating. So when the chronicler, which is my favorite word in the whole world, chronicler writes... First and Second Chronicles, he's writing to a nation that has lost its religious identity and is struggling to find its space in the world. 
Because when it's written, this is now when Persia's taken over, so Persia comes in, knocks out Babylon, and now you have uh, the ability for the nation of Israel to go home to Jerusalem and to rebuild. And so the whole question that First and Second Chronicles, which was at one time one book, was asking, and it was an important question for them, and it's an important question for us, was, is God still interested in us? Like, we had the temple. We don't even have the kings anymore. We're not even in control. We're still just basically, like, we're still basically in exile because the other nation is totally in charge of us. Is God still interested in us? Is God paying attention? They, were, they needed something to help them rebuild because they were going to build a second temple. And this was going to be a big deal, but they needed a new lens to view this in. So the Chronicle tells the same story that they know and love again, but this time for a new audience in a new context. And because the story is for a new audience and in a new context, the story becomes a new story. A story that needed to be heard. That's why we can come to these scriptures over and over again. I can tell the story of the prodigal son until my face turns blue and I'm going to find new things every time because my context is always changing. The story changes when we understand the context that we're in, the space that we're standing in. A story like the Good Samaritan in light of what happened in Vegas, crazy town, totally different context. We need these stories to help us rebuild because right now we are crazy, crazy broken. In this country, in this world, all of this stuff, we have to look to these stories and this amazing God to understand how we can rebuild, regroup, and move forward. And it doesn't matter if it's the same story over and over again. When I, uh, when I say I love you to someone, whether that's my wife or uh, a friend, whatever it might be, when I say I love you, it's the same three words every time. I love you. I love you. But when I say them to someone like my wife, who I deeply love, it means something totally different. Every time. I love you. Doesn't just mean a statement. It means I see you deeply and I love you. I love you when, when I've done something terrible means I'm sorry. I mean, these same three words mean so much whenever the context shifts. It's flexible. And when we look at these stories and how God uses them, we can stare at them and realize that that is God saying, I love you, right back at us every single time. Let's pray together. Lord, um, I'm just so grateful for context. It's so important, and I pray that you would um, uh, give us a week of just being able to pay attention, being able to look around and listen to maybe the people that we don't understand um, and learn something new about you. Amen.